For the week of Wednesday, September 12th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk about how Democrats, and in particular progressives, can and should be working to build lasting frameworks and coalitions to win, not just in 2018 and 2020, but for decades to come. Mike Lux, who was part of the Clinton White House and who has worked as a senior vice president at People for the American Way, joins us to talk about his new book, How to Democrat in the Age of Trump. Lux says that, in many ways, the work has already begun at the grassroots level. One of the reasons that we've been doing well uh, in reaction to Trump is that that rising tide has happened. People are, like, taking things into their own hands. They're ignoring (laughs) the national conventional wisdom, and they're saying, you know what? I'm going to run for office. I'm going to build an organization. I'm going to make a local investment. And that kind of grassroots energy is exactly what's fueling our success so far this year. We also speak with indivisible leaders in Massachusetts and Florida about the surprise wins of Ayanna Presley and Andrew Gillum in their states, respectively, about the roles each group played, and about the ascendancy of progressive politics nationally. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Ten years ago, things were looking good for Democrats. Obama came into office on a wave. The Democrats had a large majority of the House and a 60-vote majority in the Senate. They had the majority of governorships and controlled the majority of state legislatures. A decade later, these numbers are almost reversed. Since 2008, Democrats have lost a net 11 Senate seats, 12 governorships, 63 House seats, and control of 32 legislatures, with a loss of 903 legislative seats. So, here to talk about all this in a positive way about how Democrats can find their way back is Mike Lux. He is the co-founder and president of Progressive Strategies. Previously, he was senior vice president for political action at People for the American Way. He also served in the Clinton White House from 93 to 95. Additionally, he has played a role in five different presidential campaign teams, and he was named to the transitional team for Barack Obama. His new book is How to Democrat in the Age of Trump. So, Mike Lux, with all of that, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So, look, you know, I want to get right into uh, a lot of the things that you recommend in the book that Democrats need to do, not just to win in 2018 and in 2020, but to build a winning coalition for the future, which I think is is what you're you're really focused on here. But before we do, I do want to just briefly discuss 2016, and I promise not to make it too painful for everybody, uh, you included, <laughs> but um, you were a senior advisor to the DNC in the last two months before the 2016 election. And I'm just wondering, at this time, did you see the writing on the wall? Did you anticipate that the Democrats were heading for such a, a bruising election? You know, when you're when you're in the middle of, an, uh, of, a, of a campaign, uh, you, uh, you, you you never know. I mean, you you have gut you have gut instincts. You have you have worries. You have hopes. And I can't I can't say that I uh, I fully anticipated. Uh, what happened. Um, and I, I certainly was hopeful that everything would come together and, uh, and all of that, but I did have, I, I think more worries than, uh, than most of the people in, in the Democratic party. There was a lot of confidence, uh, going, going into this election. I mean, I, you know, there, there was one meeting I was in at the DNC with a top official from Hillary for America where they were talking about a, a you know a ten or eleven point blowout, uh, yeah. 
and, and you know, just there was a lot of confidence, uh, and that was true throughout the campaign, including at the end, even after the the, the Comey stuff, even after uh, you know some of the last minute tightening of the polls. And I did not share that confidence. Uh, I, I I wasn't all doom and gloom. I was too focused on trying to turn out the vote and <laughs> right, trying to do everything I could to make it uh, make it a good outcome, but. Yeah. Uh, I did not share that confidence because I could see how hollowed out the Democratic Party uh, had become uh, organizationally, institutionally, um, that, that our that our infrastructure was very poor on the ground in a lot of states. Uh, and, and I could, uh, frankly, uh, see the arrogance of a lot of the people in the Clinton campaign who, who were completely confident that they knew what they were doing, but who weren't listening to some of the feedback that that we were all seeing on the ground, you know, the field organizers from places like Michigan and Wisconsin and and uh, and, and Pennsylvania were, were reporting back to us different things that than the than the HFA folks in Brooklyn were saying was going to happen. And, well, that's one of the places that you talk about the disconnect, yeah. basically, where the structure sort of broke down with the the DNC and and really just Democratic leadership in general. And, you know, in your book, you jump in right away and say that one of the ways to repair the modern Democratic Party is to get rid of that top-down structure. Um, I, I think people generally know what you mean by that, but just flesh that concept out a little bit. How would you like to see the DNC or just leadership in general restructured? Well, I think, uh, I mean, that, that's a... That's a uh that's a long, uh, <laughs> a long and complicated answer. It is, and you devote a, a fair amount of the book to it. But I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is really sort of returning the power to grassroots organizations yeah, like Indivisible, and we'll get to that. But also, you talk about there's this sort of culture of over reliance on donors and consultants and, and things like that. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I, look, I'm I'm a uh, a Washington D.C. Consultant and my the, one of the biggest pieces of it in, in advice in my book is that my entire class of people should should be uh, thrown out the door and, and ignored. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm the DC consultant that says get rid of the DC consultant. So you want to be I, out of a job, basically? <laughs> you know, I, I I'd have to figure out another way to to make, to make a living, but uh, you know. Uh, if, if if that's what needed to happen, uh, uh, I'd be okay with it. Um, I just think that we are we are too much. Our, our culture of a party uh, at the national level has become very much of a top-down party. That the that the experts inside these small private rooms know what we're talking about. That we we have the formulas, we have the numbers, we have the the micro targeting, we you know, and we don't really need the grassroots uh, uh, anymore. I think is the attitude of a lot of folks. It was certainly the attitude of many of the people uh, in in Brooklyn, in that Brooklyn Hillary for America office. Um, and what what I think we need instead is to really invest in not just grassroots Democrats and, and grassroots parties, uh, but but I argue that we ought to be investing in grassroots progressive. Uh, organizations uh, and 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 the grassroots progressive movement. Um, I, I think I think we ought to be uh, as a party. We ought to be looking for what what who are the or who are the local organizers on the ground in all of these places 
who are making the biggest difference? What are the what are the organizations that are making the biggest difference? And how can we build that infrastructure? I think we're going to start winning again when uh, it, when it when it becomes a rising tide of organizing uh, rather than a top-down uh, kind of apparatus. Right. And I do think I and I do think now. I mean, one of the reasons that we've been doing well uh, in reaction to Trump is that that rising tide has happened. People are like taking things into their own hands. They're ignoring <laughs> the national, you know, conventional wisdom. And they're saying, you know what, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to build an organization. I'm going to make, make you know, uh, make a local investment. And that kind of grassroots energy is exactly what's fueling our success so far uh, this year. And there have been a lot of very notable wins. I mean, we've seen very high profile upsets uh, recently by Democrats who are running on strong progressive platforms. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, yeah. uh, Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts, and Andrew Gillum in Florida very recently. Um, and so you talk about that being a, maybe a product of people just deciding to sort of buck the system. And we'll get into this more in just a second, but I'm just curious, do you feel like voters are just simply ready for a more progressive message in 2018? Uh, is it the Trump effect? I mean, what, what what is driving this overall, do you think? Well, I think um, I, I do think voters are, are ready for a progressive message and progressive policies, because I think you, you see you see a couple different things going on at the same time and they relate to each other and they feed into each other. And. And what I argue in my book is that the progressive movement and, uh, you know, working class uh, economic issues that, you know, swing voters, you know, are, are focused on, they, they actually feed into each other. I think that we have the ability, if we stop thinking about these, these two things, you know, uh, the quote unquote white working class versus versus base voters, if we stop thinking about them as two entirely separate kinds of people, entirely separate demographics, that we should have an entirely separate strategy around and message around, but instead think, what what is the thing that unifies people uh, and, and brings people together? What is the message? What are the issues? What's the agenda? Um, and, and, and what are the values? Well, yeah. And, you know, actually, I really want to unpack that in depth, because I feel like that's really kind of the bulk of your book. Uh, but before we get to that, I just kind of want to get to this idea of I want to get your take on what what I think is a uh, for one of a better word, uh, an identity crisis that the Democrats have right now. Um, you, one of the things you hear from people is that they just don't know what Democrats stand for. You hear this from everybody, from uh, consultants to grassroots organizers to, to voters. Um, and I feel like you hit on something very fundamental in your book when you say that one of the things that defines Democrats is how they view the concept of freedom versus how Republicans define it. Can you talk briefly about that? Uh, yeah, let, let me ask you uh, a question first. Uh, can I swear on your show? Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, in, in, in my book, I basically say, look, uh, de Democrats and progressives have not embraced the word freedom uh, uh, nearly enough. And it's not just saying the word a lot. I, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. What we have to do is we freedom is, is 
is like the essential American value. If you, if you look at it by any measure, if you look at the amount of time that people talk about it in speeches, everybody, uh, if, you, if you look at advertisers, corporate, <laughs> corporate advertisers, right? Talk about freedom, you know, cars, you know, you're like the freedom to drive, you know, sure. uh, if you, if you look at polling, uh, uh, and, and overwhelmingly, freedom is like the concept that people are most passionate about, most value, most believe in, most that, that, that they think of as most defining the American way. And progressives have tended to like shy away from freedom, while Republicans have embraced it. But what what we have to do is we have to get back to what is the right definition of freedom. To uh, to conservatives, to Trump, to the Republican Party of the modern era, freedom means the freedom to be an ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how I describe it in my book. You, you say basically that, that it means a freedom to do whatever they want, no matter who it hurts. Yeah, whatever they want to whoever they want to do it to, whenever they want to do it, <laughs> no matter what the consequences, no. right? They want the freedom to treat workers like shit. They want the freedom to pollute uh, the, the air and water. They want the freedom to make fun of people with disabilities. They want the freedom to march around with the Klan. They want the freedom to do whatever the hell they want to do, whenever they want to do it. And um, what Democrats need to be fighting for is the opposite kind of freedom, the freedom to build a good life for ourselves, our families, our communities. The, the the freedom uh, to be free from from all of that uh, bullshit, uh, and and to have have a community where workers are actually have enough to support their uh, their families, yeah. where parents have the ability to take time off if they need to time to take time off to have that freedom to do that, where people know that if they drink the water, uh, it's not going to be polluted. That. Uh, the freedom to like do things for yourself that actually build a good life. So we don't want the freedom to be an asshole. We want the freedom to to uh, have a good life and and have our families have a good life and to build a strong sense of community. And I think that is such an essential difference yeah. between Democrats and Republicans, between progressives and and. at least the modern version of conservatism. Well, you know, it's funny because there is a move uh, among a lot of progressives to to take back the flag – uh, as as a symbol for for patriotism, take it back from uh, people who uh, on the right have maybe co-opted it. And I think that there should be a, an equivalent move to take back the word freedom uh, for all the reasons that you just outlined. So let's get into unpacking what I said is the bulk of your book. And that is where you talk about a lot of the binaries that Democrats feel that they have to choose between. Um, the thing that you brought up was trying to choose between swing voters versus base voters. You also talk about having to choose between the politics of fairness versus a growth economy, uh, urban versus rural outreach. You call these false choices. Um, And I think this is especially challenging where Democrats have to run in so-called purple districts. And we have three of those races happening here in Washington for Congress. It's very pertinent. Um, So let's start with the need to appeal to the Democratic base 
versus trying to moderate to win over swing voters. This seems like the biggest challenge to purple and red state Democrats. Why do you consider this a false choice? Because I think we can have uh, a message, uh, issues, the values that we portray uh, that that appeal to uh, they, they'll never appeal to the far far right wing Republicans, but 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 they, they they appeal to the broad majority, the American people. Uh, most of the base, the quote unquote Democratic base, are working class folks. Most of the swing are working class folks. They face the same issues every day. They uh, they're getting screwed in, in the same way every day. Uh, and for us to like spend a lot of time, oh well, let's differentiate uh, between the two and let's pick between the two. I just think that that is crazy. Um, I, I think that uh, if you go into rural America, uh, they have the same issues that they're dealing with the people in urban America. It's it's a different world in some ways. It's a different culture. And I spent much of my life in rural America. I'm from Nebraska, and my wife grew up on a farm in Missouri. So I see the differences sort of culturally and, and, and the way people live. But in terms of the basic issues, like whether their kids are going to get a decent education or not, whether they're going to have access to quality health care or not, whether they're ever going to get a raise like ever. Uh, I mean, those issues are, are absolutely on both sides. I mean, one thing Democrats do is we get so worried about the differences between people that we don't want to be honest about what we stand for. It's like, oh, well, let's not talk about black people when we're in rural America. Well, I, I call bull on that. I think, in fact, uh, in my experience in talking to people in rural America is if you say, look, you know, uh, Donald Trump is trying to divide people on the basis of race. He's trying to scare people about black folks, about immigrants. Um, and the reason he's trying to do that is that he, he wants to pick our pocket. <laughs> you know, he and he and his cronies want to make money. And so they're they're busy. They're busy distracting us. This is a very important point that you're bringing up here, because you actually opened the book by talking about some informal polling that you did in Minnesota, both in urban and rural uh, districts that showed that discussing race overtly. And this is something that I think a lot of Democrats are very afraid to do. But discussing it overtly, particularly as it intersects with and impacts economic prosperity, turns out to be an effective way to win people over for progressive causes and candidates. Well, it absolutely does. And, and, and the interesting thing about it, and by the way, it wasn't, it, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. This wasn't me that did the polling. It was a project that uh, a, a great organization. I should uh, say that, that you that, cite some, some, some yeah, polling, that, not that, that you did it yourself. Well, yeah. An organization called Demos did this project. And the, the fascinating thing was using, using the kind of message that I just was talking about, where they where they lead with race, they don't avoid it. They don't like, you know, kind of mumble it at the end, <laughs> right? They lead with it, and that that message actually does better to turn out people of color and motivate people of color than a pure economic populist message. But it also does better, uh, actually does quite a bit better with white working class. Folks with swing vote with those swing voters that were that uh, people are always talking about that that if you say look you know 
these guys are trying to divide you uh, from, uh, from from other folks, and there's a reason that they're doing that. And then you go into the economic uh, issues that both sides care about. Um, that that's a more powerful message than just pure like let's just do economic populism. And by the way, I'm a huge economic populist. I, I believe in leading with those issues. My my favorite politician uh, is, is Elizabeth Warren. So uh, I don't, I'm not saying avoid populism, but I'm saying start the conversation with what Trump is trying to do uh, to divide people and then go into the economics. Right. Well, and that kind of gets into, I think, what is a, sort of a difficult nut to crack for uh, a lot of people on the left who try to rely on fact-based arguments to sort of deliver their message. And I think polling will show and actually psychological studies will show that politics are far more driven by emotion than facts, which is why you will find people uh, on the the working class Republican side who continue to vote against their own economic interests, right? Yeah, absolutely. Politics is driven first and foremost by emotion, by uh, values by uh, by culture, by people's hearts, uh, th- than it is by uh, by policy or or sort of wonky facts. And I <laughs> I think Democrats have this tendency to all- always want to you know sort of lay out the policy ideas first, lay out the facts first, and sort of build their argument on that. And I think what we need to do is build our argument on values and emotion and bringing people together uh, emotionally uh, and then say, okay, and, and here's an example, and then talk about the policy as an example uh, of, the, of the value. Uh, I think that is so much more powerful uh, uh, with people than, than starting with a bunch of facts. Well, the GOP has done this extraordinarily effectively, particularly in their use of fear and hatred in, in order to uh, to drive a lot of, of their policies. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, are there things ultimately that, you know, beyond just using the emotional pull, are there other things that we can learn from the GOP? I mean, for one thing, they did manage to focus on state and local races at a time when the Democrats were so focused on the top of the ticket issues and, and particularly in getting Obama reelected. And it seems like we're turning around and starting to uh, refocus on a lot of what we've lost at the state uh, and local level. But also the GOP has managed to pull together a pretty unlikely coalition. They've pulled together evangelicals with white supremacists to vote for uh, a twice divorced serial philanderer whose uh, whose grandchildren are Jewish. Um, it seems a bit perverse, but w- what can we learn from that in your mind? Well, I, th- I think you uh, I think you can always learn from your uh, opponents uh, if you're paying attention. Um, and I, th- I think w- one of the things that we need to understand is that Republicans uh, they, they tend to talk about. Uh, economic issues uh, as part of their uh, spiel more than we do. And that's the ironic thing is that uh, the the Republicans over the last 10 years have run more ads praising Medicare than Democrats have. Uh, And you know why? Because they want to use it to attack (laughs) the, the ACA, right? They want to use it to attack the healthcare bill, and they said, oh, this threatens Medicare. Medicare is so great, we don't want to threaten Medicare. 
So they they will spin things and they will actually run to our left. Trump, for the raging racist that he was, and he started with racism and ended with racism. But you know what? In the middle, in 2016, he ran to Hillary's left on trade, on Wall Street, even on some uh, taxation issues. He talked about how he would never cut Social Security or Medicare. His language on the issues was very much focused on uh, working class and poor people. And he, he ran to Hillary's left uh, on those issues. And that was that was the great irony of 2016. And he didn't follow through on any of that. And that gets no, into what in the book you call are some definitional fights that the Democrats should be picking going forward beyond health care and taxes. You talk about uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, you talk about taking on Wall Street. What are some of the other areas where you believe Democrats can fight and win going forward? Well, I think uh, I think one thing is uh, is education. Uh, and and this is this is something. Uh, I mean, I was talking earlier about rural, rural and urban. Uh, yeah. There, there, there's there is nothing that unites rural and urban more than the education issue. If you go into uh, inner city communities of color, schools are falling down. They're in terrible shape. If you go into rural America, uh, the schools are falling down. They're in terrible shape. Uh, they they have poorly paid teachers. They have you know they they just have bad education. So uh, I think that we we can fight a definitional fight uh, over education and should. I mean I think uh, you mentioned Wall Street. Wall Street is a huge issue, and Trump Trump uh, attacked Wall Street in his 2016 campaign. Yeah. But but ever since he got elected, everything he's done has been to help Wall Street. Uh, to me, that is an absolute quintessential definitional fight. And so that's an have, opening for Democrats. It's, it's absolutely an opening for Democrats. Um, here, here's another uh, uh, big one. Trump talked about that he was going to rebuild America's infrastructure, our highways, our bridges, our, our roads. Uh, uh, and they haven't done anything uh, on that. The, and this, and the, the stuff that has been talked about is is just complete bullshit. It's it's smoke and mirrors. I think if I think if Democrats got serious about uh, an infrastructure package that really had substance and 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 muscle to it, uh, where where we put real money into it and, and uh, you know were are uh, specific about what we want to do, I think people would really respond to that. And especially after the promises of Trump, where he didn't do anything. Uh, for two years. Uh, so I think, I think that's a great fight, uh, to have. Uh, I think, I think, I think the climate fight is a great fight to have because it's about the future versus the past. And I don't think we should be shy at all uh, about attacking the carbon economy. Uh, and I am, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who is, uh, you know, I believe in contesting in places like West Virginia and Kentucky, where the coal industry has been so strong. But I think we need to have conversations with folks there and say, look, you know, the world is changing, the science is real, and we have to do something. But, but what we should do uh, is we should make huge investments in places like West Virginia and Kentucky and the Carolinas. We should be investing in green jobs. They're already creating far more jobs than the coal industry. 
by, by, by a massive number. Um, they're already creating more jobs than even the oil industry, which is quite a bit bigger than coal. But if we made a major investment there, uh, if we had, a, if, if Democrats came out with a really a strong, aggressive climate plan uh, that would create 15 million new jobs in green energy and make it very specific and targeted to make sure that it was it, it was replacing the jobs that, that people are going to lose, I think we should have that uh, fight. We should have that debate. So there, there are some big issues out there that I think um, we, need, we need to be very, uh, very aggressive about pushing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like everything you're talking about, these definitional fights are not only contrasting with the, the message of fear from the Republicans, they're, they, they also represent an opportunity to reach out to a lot of these states and regions that Democrats have in many ways kind of given up on in the last decade. And this kind of gets us back to what we were talking about earlier when we started our discussion, which is about returning to the grassroots, getting people on the ground. And, you know, you talk about winning in November and beyond and really building stable coalitions. And you say that the future of the party is with the grassroots. Uh, you talk in your book about and you, you call out Indivisible by name, which is awesome. Uh, and you say that they represent the breakup of the current Washington, D.C. orthodoxy. You say that IBM is to DC what Cisco is to Indivisible. So I love this. Talk about what you mean by that. Well, and I, this idea came to me from a from a friend uh, who was actually one one of the founders of Cisco. He was he was the first lead engineer at Cisco back in the late eighties, and and he's also very active and Indivisible. And uh, he and I were talking, he actually, he wrote this uh, in, in a great column that I cited uh, in the book. But, but the idea was that in, in the late 80s, uh, IBM thought that it, it was, the they thought that they had it all, that they were, they were going to leave the world forever. They were going to be the big technology company with their, with their huge, uh, uh, you know, uh, centralized supercomputer. But at that very moment, that very moment, companies like Cisco were forming to build networks uh, and to create these, these I, I mean, literally like grassroots networks of regular folks with their personal computers and their own email accounts uh, and, and would be able to build their own economy, be able to build, create their own jobs. And it was like this revolution. And, and the argument I make in the book is that that is the moment that we're in right now, that organizations like Indivisible um, and, and even some older organizations like Move On, um, but Facebook pages, you know, social media in general, we have the ability now to build our own movement and, and to recreate our own party and that the centralized folks in D.C. Uh, have lost touch with what's going on at the grassroots level. And they, they need to understand uh, what, what's happening out there and embrace it, not resist it, right. not push it down or, you know, uh, condescend to it. But they need to embrace that decentralization and that it will make them more powerful in the end if they embrace decentralization. So just one last thing that uh, I want to touch on before I let you go. Um, you spend a portion of the book 
talking, of course, about the divide between the Democrats and uh, and progressives. But you also point out that uh, for people who were disenchanted with the Democrats, uh, and we saw a lot of people defect in 2016 uh, in, in a way that may have even tipped the race, uh, you say that the only time that you have seen progress in this country was when there were Democratic majorities that could push it through. And I would just love for you to reiterate this point, if you could. Well, um, I mean, this is this is what drives me the most crazy about some of my progressive friends who want to cast protest votes and, and who say there's no difference between the Democrats and Republicans. Look, in, I mean, I am very blunt in the book. I am very frustrated with a lot of the Democratic national leaders. I think they, they have at times pursued bad strategies. I haven't always agreed with with uh, some of the issue decisions that were made. And, and I'm very, very critical on some things. But I also believe, absolutely believe, that we don't make any progress at all uh, in this country if the Republicans control things. That party has become uh, so corrupt, um, so so full of, like, paybacks and cronyism and... and uh, and, and just right-wing lunacy uh, on, on issues ranging, ranging from race to climate uh, to, to everything else. Uh, when, when Democrats win, at least we have the chance for progress. And, and, and you see it, and I, and I list a whole set of issues in my book that I've seen uh, pushed through because Democrats were in the majority in Congress because we had Democratic uh, presidents. And, and the bills that were passed you know, were never perfect, but they were better. Sure. <laughs> they were better. We made progress. You know, the ACA, uh, there, there's all kinds of imperfections with the ACA, but a lot more people have health care today because of it. And the insurance companies can't screw people with pre-existing conditions over. I mean, there's some, those are, that's big deal. Those are big things. And I think it's also important to remember that uh, there were a number of red state senators uh, like Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, um, who voted to keep the ACA. Uh, we may not always like the progressives may not always like the way that they vote, but uh, they are part of the Democratic coalition. Well, well, they are. And they voted with us on uh, to keep ACA and, and, and keep that, that law alive. They voted with us on tax bill, uh, which is a huge bill. I think when progressives do a good job of telling our story uh, and, and when, when the national issue debate, uh, the Democratic coalition will stay united. And that's what happened on both of those issues. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I would you know, make the plea with people as frustrated as we sometimes get with our national Democrats. Uh, it is so much better to win elections for the Democrats to win elections than to have the Republicans governing. Uh, it is so much better, and we have so much more opportunity uh, for real progress. And I, and I think we're going to see that in the years to come. If Democrats are able to come back and win elections and govern again, I think we're going to see major progress on a whole bunch of issues. Maybe not every issue. Maybe not, maybe not an issue you know, people particularly care about here or there. But on a lot of issues, in a lot of ways, we'll be able to see uh, see progress. And that will come not just because we win elections, but because we keep building the progressive movement. 
You are going to be appearing at the Northwest Progressive Institute on September 13th from 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, Sarah Robinson will be moderating that talk. Uh, the Northwest Progressive Institute is at 4242 Northeast 89th Street in Seattle. I'll have information for that on the website. The book is called How to Democrat in the Age of Trump from Strong Arm Press. Mike Lux, thank you so much for your time. It's been so great to be with you. This has been a really fun interview. Hello, Indivisible Action, Tampa Bay. This is Andrew Gillum, mayor of Tallahassee and candidate for Florida governor. I want to first begin by thanking you so much from the bottom of my heart for the vote of confidence that you put into me by uh, endorsing my candidacy to become the next governor of Florida. So that was the voice, as you just heard, of Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum. And when he recorded that message back in June of this year, thanking Indivisible Action Tampa Bay for their endorsement, nobody really thought he had a shot. But, uh, of course, since then, on August 28th, Andrew Gillum surprised pretty much the entire state of Florida by defeating a field of five other Democratic candidates, including former U.S. Representative Gwen Graham and former Miami Beach Mayor Philip Levine to advance to face Republican Ron DeSantis in November. So I wanted to talk with the founder of Indivisible Action Tampa Bay, Christine Hanna, first about the night that Gilm won. It was a very emotional scene, and I asked Christine what was going through her head that evening. I had kept my head down here in Pinellas and Hillsborough counties, um, and I wasn't really sure how the rest of the state felt about Mayor Gillum. I knew that we were going to pull for him as hard as we could, um, but I really didn't know how it was going to go. I went in, I'm very optimistic as a rule. Mm. I went in feeling like we had probably about a 50-50 chance to take it, and um, I wasn't surprised because I knew how hard Mr. Gillum had worked. Like Mayor Gillum, I think a lot of people slept on him because they didn't realize what a hard worker he is. But when you're raised working class and you've got that hard hustle like Mayor Gillum has, um, you can surprise a lot of people. And that's what he did. You know, as Gillum says in his video, he's unapologetically progressive. Um, There has been a lot of debate and even equivocation about how Democrats should be running in 2018. Uh, And in many ways, as you know, Florida is kind of the quintessential swing state in the country. How do you personally read Andrew Gillum's victory in terms of how Democrats can run and win nationwide on progressive issues? Well, it's it's interesting because this morning I was listening to the fourth episode of the Wilderness podcast. Yeah, sure. That's John Favreau's podcast of Pod Save America. Yeah, yeah. It's so enlightening. And they were talking about surveys that were done with people asking them that very question, what's wrong with the Democratic Party? And how can they win? How can they position themselves to win? And one of the overall thoughts from that process was that no one really knew what the Democratic Party stood for. But we do know what the progressive platform is. We can put that on the back of a three by five note card. And I think that um, if candidates want to win, they need to go to their core beliefs. And I think a lot of them will go to those core democratic beliefs that are, you know, promoting the person to better the person's life in order to better the community. It really starts there. And Andrew Gillum won in Florida. (laughs) People said that there was no way that he would win. 
um, because he had those true beliefs and people want something to believe in. People want to vote for someone who is, you know, firm in their beliefs and not afraid to state what they think. You know, you can agree or you can disagree with Mayor Gillum's platform, but at least you know what it is. It's not vague. It's not contradictory. And uh, he really gave us something that we could get behind. And I think that's what the party as a whole needs to have some sort of ideology right now. <laughs> well, you are not alone in uh, that sentiment. So there's obviously a lot of work to do between now and November. Uh, we're all talking about that in indivisible groups across the country. What's next for your group? Uh, what are you going to be doing between now and November? Well, we do not stop. We've gone <laughs> through about a thousand get out the vote postcards in the past week and a half. Um, we have had three canvases in the past week, and we have a training coming up um, in both counties, one on Saturday, one on Sunday, um, to train people on political messaging, how to use the Hustle app, how to canvas, how to lead a canvas. We have an army of people, and we're training and equipping them thanks to the indivisible tools uh, to to get out the vote and to reach like-minded people to reach the NPAs who we know are disenfranchised by Trump's brand of politics to get them to vote blue in November. Next, I spoke with another indivisible group that played an instrumental role in a bold progressive candidate surprising everybody with the win. This time, it was Boston City Council member Ayanna Presley defeating 10-term incumbent Congressman Michael Capuano in Massachusetts' primary for the 7th District. The group is Indivisible Mystic Valley, which covers the 7th District, and that is a district that covers half the city of Boston. I spoke with the leader of that group, Zaida Ortiz, about when she decided to come on board with Ayanna Presley, and it actually dates back to a visit that Michael Capuano decided to pay to a local indivisible group. Last April, Mr. Capuano actually showed up to an indivisible Somerville meeting. And Mr. Capuano just walked in. Um, we didn't expect him, but of course we gave him the time to speak with his constituency. And we were really kind of impressed that he just, you know, looked us up on Facebook and showed up. I was impressed until he actually started talking to us. Um, one of our members asked him about some housing, uh, affordable housing issues that were going on at the time in Somerville. And it was just astonishing how he decided to mansplain and explain to us. Mm. He did the whole kind of leaning in on the chair with his sleeves rolled up, oh, you know, the man spread thing with the <laughs> knee up on the chair. Like, I was just like, is this really happening? And he started to, to explain to us how things work in Washington and how while he sees this is an important issue, there's really not much he can do. I was just like, this is what's wrong with Congress is people who aren't in touch with their constituency and more in touch with what their colleagues and how the Beltway is working. And so we promote a lot of immigrant rights things, and we participate in the May Day rally and march that happens here in Boston, and we march through Latino communities of East Boston, Chelsea, and Everett. You know, so I had my little group. We were all settled. We were ready to roll, and we are just kind of waiting to, to get marching and all of a sudden I see Ayana Presley and she had just announced that she was running against my Capuano. And so, of course, we walked over to her and started talking. And I was just immediately impressed with what she had to say, why she was running 
And I had a lovely conversation with her. And all of a sudden I saw Mike Capuano shaking hands through the crowd. And I have to tell you, I'd never seen him at a May Day march or rally. And I walk over, I say hello, and I'm actually standing with one of the organizers of the rally who has been organizing and and a community organizer for almost 35 years. And he quickly asked her, how long have you guys been doing this? Mm. And he says, I've been organizing this rally for 30 years. Now, he's been the congressman of Chelsea for 20-something years, and he never realized this was happening. Another note to me that was like, he is not in touch with his constituency. Right. Yeah. It sounds like he's uh, he's not real tapped in to, to what's happening there. And so and we were all in at that moment. We were all in. Right. So so you're all in for Presley. So uh, talk a little about some of the things that uh, Indivisible Mystic Valley did uh, on, you know, in coordination with her campaign. Uh, I imagine uh, phone banking, door knocking, that sort of thing. Door knocking, phone banking. Yep. Um, we even uh, drove people to the the. Um, my husband drove people to the um, to the polls on on election day. So, you know, we we felt it's so important to get behind her again, to have that kind of representation, to have that kind of voice, who understands what it's like to be poor, what it's like to be a person of color, what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck yeah. and having to pay, you know, steal from Peter to pay Paul. That really resonated with a lot of our members. Well, you know, I should mention that another very exciting result of this election is that uh, in Boston, three other candidates of color uh, replaced conservative leadership at the state house. Right. So tell us tell us about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so, well, while we did not win our D.A. choice in Middlesex County, Suffolk County voted elected the first woman of color, Rachel Rollins, into the um, position. And she is amazing as well. She has been advocating for criminal justice reform. She helped pass some uh, legislation that we worked on this past summer in the state house to reform our cash bail system, to reform even what larceny um, felonies were. Our larceny felony was $250. So, you know, you steal a cell phone, you're getting a felony charge. Mm. Our other huge, huge win was a woman named Nika uh, Delgado, who was running against a gentleman named Jeffrey Sanchez, who was part of the state house leadership. Again, we have this very controlled narrative of what bills get through. Our Speaker of the House here locally really rules the house with an iron fist. And so if he is not behind a legislation, no matter how much you advocate, good luck getting it onto the floor to vote. Um, And he stood against a policy that we were working on called the Safe Communities Act, which would help create not a sanctuary city per se, but it would eliminate 287G agreements, which uh, allows our local law enforcement to work with ICE in detaining people. It would also uh, stop any idea of a Muslim registry and ensure due process to people who were arrested and were undocumented. So he made sure that Jeffrey Sanchez shut that down and it didn't get to a vote or get included in our budget this year. So as activists who worked really hard on this, we all got together and said, you know what, 
we're getting behind the person who's opposing you. So we door knocked and fundraised and did everything we could to help Nika. And she was a long shot. She was absolutely a long shot. But again, grassroots organizing, the coalition behind the Safe Communities Act endorsed her. A lot of other progressive groups said, yes, we need to get behind Nika. And she pounced him. She pounced him. And we have now disrupted leadership in the state house. We have taken away two senior people and we're putting now two junior progressives into those spots. It's, it's great. Well, this is very exciting, and it's just a, a testament to uh, really the ascendant power of grassroots uh, politics in this country. Um, Zeta, look, I, I know that you're recovering from surgery, uh, and you've had a, a tough uh, last 10 days. So I just want to thank you for joining us under those circumstances. Um, I should also mention that I have had the pleasure to attend a training that you helped put on, and you are just awesome. So, uh, Zeta Ortiz, thank you so much for all you do. No, thank you. It's it's a pleasure. And I mean, if I can just inspire one more person to knuckle up the courage to knock on a door or do a phone bank, it's one more moving the needle, one more space over. And I'm happy to do this anytime. And that'll do it for this week's show. Before I go, I should mention that you guys should check out a great piece in The Stranger by our friend Rich Smith about Carolyn Long, who is running to defeat Jamie Herrera Butler in Washington's 3rd District. Check it out. I will have a link for it at indivisiblepodcast.org, along with links to every other thing that we have talked about here on the show today. And I should mention that you can subscribe to the show there to get the show delivered to your email inbox. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at Indivisible Pod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thanks again to my guests Mike Lux, Zaida Ortiz, and Christine Hanna. Special thanks to Andrea Haverdink. And of course, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>